0: Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Welcome to a new year. It is so great to be with you guys. I don't know how 2019 ended for you. Uh, Maybe it ended on a high note. Uh, maybe you're like, that was the greatest year ever, or maybe you are so grateful to hit reset, grateful for a new year. Uh, one of the things I love about Christmas is that you know, we have all these expectations. Uh, I love Christmas, and I, I put a lot of hype into it, but it doesn't always deliver. And sometimes the higher expectations, the greater the fall, you know, when, it, when it doesn't quite live up to it. And one of the things that I saw recently was a number of Christmas fails, you know things that you thought were going to be great, didn't quite play out, and maybe you can relate with a few of these. Uh, have you ever got someone a gift and you realize they already had the gift? Like, for example, when you get Grandpa a shirt. <laughs> and then it dawns on you, wait a minute, I think Grandpa already has this shirt. And uh, I just think that's a great moment when you're opening that present and you're like, hey, that's cool. Uh, or, like, you think, hey, let's get our kids some cool new toy. Like, what's the newest thing out there? Like, I don't know, let's get them a drone. What could possibly go wrong with that, right? Yeah, that's, that's not a good day when you, when you had to figure out how to, how to get her hair out of that one. Or some of you, you are the crazy ones. You decided, hey, we've got little kids, but let's travel for the holidays. That will be great. And so you got to experience something probably like this uh, in an airport. <laughs> And I love all of that. And so I don't know how your 2019 ended, but we're so glad that you're here. I wanna welcome you to Abundant Life Church, Uh, to those in the room with me, to those of you who are watching or listening online. If you got through a YouTube channel, podcast, however you got here, we're so glad uh, that you are joining us today. My name is Jeremy, the lead pastor here. And uh, if you are new, uh, we're a church about giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. And we're so glad that you are part of it. Uh, Hopefully, if you're with us, you got a journal. I wanna encourage you to get that out. Uh, If you're kind of confused, On the purpose of this, uh, we encourage you to take notes. You'll see a spot you can go to week one there uh, and encourage you to write down uh, things that we talk about today, verses that stand out to you, ideas that stand out to you. And this is a tool for you to reference later in your own journey with God as you uh, connect with God throughout the week. And hopefully, you're in a life group, and we have a whole life group section in there as well. So if you go to week one, uh, you'll see a spot to write the title down. Today's title should get you all ready uh, is When Jesus Got Mad. This would be a fun one. Uh, so you can write down the title, you can reference this later. you know that's the one we're talking about. And I want to point your attention to something. We added a new feature. It's, it's New, New Year, New Us." Uh, new feature of the journals. If you go to week one, in the bottom right, you'll see a new box that didn't exist in 2019 journals. Uh, but the box says, "Who did you meet today?" And let me explain this to you, uh, because you might be going, what's to do with that box? You may have noticed, we tried a little experiment uh, in 2019. It worked shockingly well, but we thought, hey, instead of like a 15-second greeting time, let's up it to a minute so you can actually have a conversation with people around you. And you guys have done that, and you're meeting people, and it's amazing, but I don't know how you are with meeting new people. I have this weird social anxiety that whenever I meet someone, I'll say, hi, my name is Jeremy, what's your name? And then I black out. Like the very next thing they say, I'm out. I don't even hear it. It doesn't register. I don't know what that is about me. I should probably get that checked. But there's something that happens. Uh, I just black out and I have a hard time remembering names. But maybe you have had the similar thing where you come, you meet somebody, and then the next week you're sitting around them again and you're like, shoot, they told me their name last week and I don't remember it. So you just write their name down as you meet them And then you pull your journal out next week and go, hey, Jacob, great to meet (laughs) you. You're welcome. And so I want to encourage you, get to know the people who sit around you. Uh, Likely you're going to see them uh, week after week. Uh, Actually get to know them. This will help you meet someone new. Uh, Write their name down and encourage you to take advantage of that with us. Well, if you would, get your Bibles out. Go to John chapter 2. We began, John, a couple months ago, and we have made it only to chapter two, because uh, chapter one was so good. There's so much there. We're going to go a little quicker now uh, that we're into chapter two, but I encourage you to get your Bible out. If you've got a physical Bible with you, that would be awesome. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you've got a Bible app, I encourage you to get that out as well. Uh, a little update for the new year. I'm going to change the version that I read out of, uh, which will affect some of you, and some of you probably won't care or notice, uh, but if you do notice and you do want to know, uh, I have I have Been reading out of the new international version. I'm going to change that to the new living translation. And so, if you want to read along in the version that we're going to use on the weekend, if you have a Bible app that's real easy, just go up to your app change your version, and you can uh, do that immediately. If you've got a physical Bible with you, that might be a little bit more of a challenge or maybe a decision that you have to make. If you have your a version and you love it, that's fine. There's no need to change it. But if you wanna have the version that we're gonna read, uh, that's the version. Now, uh, I can give you a long a- answer to why do we do that, but here's what I would say. A couple of things. Number one, the version I read out of uh, personally is a New Living Translation. I have for a number of years now. I love this version because it's incredibly easy to access. Uh, if you are new to the Bible, you haven't quite you know, like read it, you're not quite familiar with it, it's very easy to understand what is being said. And even if you have read it and you, you're pretty familiar, uh, it's, it's still very uh, good translation. I have loved it. I think it's gonna be great for us as a good entry point into what we use on the weekend. Uh, one of the things I did a number of years ago is I would change my Bible translation every year. And so I don't know if you've ever tried that, but uh, it can get, you can get kind of in a rut where you, you know the passage, you've read it, you know that version. And so for a while, every year, I would just change the version so I kept seeing it new. And that was really a good experience for me. And uh, for a number of years, I've landed on the New Living Translation. And so if you've never changed it, maybe now's a good time to, to try something new and go, hey, I wanna see it with, with fresh eyes and, and a fresh perspective, and, and you can do that. Uh, if you wanna know, hey, hey, what's the difference with NIV and NLT and all this? Uh, I'm gonna record a YouTube video this week where I'll get into some of the nitty gritty of that. I don't think most of you care about the answer to that, so I'm not gonna spend the time now. But if you're the one that you're like, hey, I wanna know that, uh, log in around Wednesday to our YouTube channel. You'll see a video there. And I'll explain the difference of some of the translations and why uh, we're gonna use the the New Living Translation moving forward. And so I encourage you to do that. Also, uh, in case you are going, hey, this is the year I'm gonna read the Bible. That would be awesome. Uh, We have our own Bible reading plan that that you can get for free. Uh, It it looks like this. Uh, We have five uh, different bookmarks and you put them in different books of the Bible and you work your way through it. Uh, These are available for free in Starting Point. You can go uh, after service today if you want. This is what I use. I have loved it. We've developed this as a church. I encourage you if if you wanna do that. uh, That is a resource we'd love to make available for you. So please take advantage of that. All right, so we're getting into the Gospel of John. Uh, I wanna give a little bit of recap in case you're new with us or in case maybe the last couple months uh, we're a little bit hazy on uh, what is John doing here? What's this all about? Well, according to John, uh, he gives us two reasons uh, for writing this book. Number one, to see Jesus as he really is. Now, for John, that means two different things. That Number one, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so again, from a Jewish point of view, the one that we've been waiting for has arrived. It's the person of Jesus. So everything we had hoped for, everything we had longed for, all that's fulfilled in Jesus. Number two, is that Jesus is God. Like, it's not just like Jesus is a great teacher, he's a great prophet, he's a great leader. No, John wants to be very clear that when you see Jesus as he is, you will see that Jesus is God. Now, why? Why does this matter that we see this? Is it so our theology is better, so we sound smart, so we have good doctrine? No, John's really clear. It's that we would find life in him, that that we would experience something different, that your day-to-day would change because you see Jesus for who Jesus really is. That has been the experience in my life, and I pray that that is the experience in your life as well as we see Jesus in new ways throughout the gospel. Now today we're gonna look at, uh, I think, a very misunderstood passage. I hear this passage quoted uh, quite a bit with all different reasons as to why it's quoted. And so we're gonna look at it today. I'm gonna try to give a little bit of the, of the context of what's going on and we can figure out what this means for us. So if you're with me in John chapter two, we're gonna begin reading in verse 13. The first part of this chapter is uh, the miracle of, uh, Jesus' first miracle in, in John of, of water into wine. And so that's kind of uh, a big one. And then he comes off of that with something equally inflammatory, uh, perhaps more so uh, when you get to what he's gonna do with the temple in in this example. And so I'm gonna read John chapter two, uh, beginning in verse 13. Again, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says, it was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. And this is where it gets good. Jesus made a whip. Now, if you've never read the Bible, uh, that might you know, come across a little bit weird to you. Like, wait, what did that just say? You read it, right? Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the money changers' coins over the floor and he turned over their tables. And then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Now, when you read this at first, you think, oh, I can't believe they had animals and they had money. And like that, image that should never happen in the house of God. That's not the issue, okay? Uh, That was all a necessary part of how the temple functioned. The animals being sold, the money exchanged, all of that was necessary for them to do uh, what was needed. Now, there's a number of reasons why. Uh, A lot of people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and if you went from, you know, say, Galilee, it's about 90 miles uh, to get there. And and so it would be uh, very uncommon for you to say, I'm going to drag an animal with me for 90 miles on foot in order to sacrifice it. Uh, You probably wouldn't do that. You would wait until you got to Jerusalem, then you would buy an animal, then you would use it as sacrifice. So it was uh, a huge part that they would have animals on hand for the, the purpose of a sacrifice. Now, if you came from uh, other places with other types of money, you would need to exchange that money to be able to, to buy you know, what was going on there. And so the money exchanging, that was all part of it as well. That's not really the issue here. To understand what's going on that, that Jesus is reacting to, you have to know the layout of the temple itself. Now, hang with me, because this is something that uh, we don't normally talk about, but this has incredible relevance to this story that we looked at. In the temple itself, there was three primary courts, okay? So I wanna explain, this is a diagram of of the temple, and there's lots of different versions of this uh, you can find online. I think this one is helpful. And so here's what you have to understand. Like right here is you know is the, the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, it it kind of all radiates out from that. And the closer you are to that, the closer you are to the presence of God, the further away you are. Uh, obviously, it, it's kind of like a, a diminishing uh, version of that. And so what you have, the, the first court that, that is of note is, is this court right here. This is called the court of Israel, this is like the top level court if you could be in, Uh, but to be in that court you had to be Jewish and a male, okay? So if you're a Jewish male, you have access to the court of Israel, you can get into that. That's the the, the primo one. Let's say that you're Jewish but you're female, well then you have access to the court of women. That would be this uh, court as well, and so uh, that would be great. But what if you're not Jewish? And and so you would be considered a Gentile, and they had a court for you called the court of Gentiles, and that would be all around this, and that was the biggest court. Now again, if you were to zoom it out, you would see the edges of the court of, of Gentiles, but for our purposes, this is zoomed in. So the court of Gentiles is the biggest one because everybody could go to the court of Gentiles and if you could, you know, uh, if you were male or you were Jewish, then you could go past the court of Gentiles and you could keep going closer and closer to where the presence of God was in your in your worship experience. Now, here's what you have to understand. Today, uh, as Americans, we don't quite understand uh, this, this uh, sectioning off of things, and we go, hey, well, what's the big deal? Why wouldn't, you know, you just, just go to the other court, you know, even if you're not Jewish. Um, that wasn't a, an option for them. In fact, uh, uh, historians have recovered uh, actual inscriptions of things that were said to keep Gentiles from moving further into a Jewish area. One of the favorite ones that has survived is this, and this is, again, you can think, I'm making this up, this is real. It said this. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for a subsequent death. Not like a suggestion here, right? Like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I want to go further. You don't go further. If you're a Gentile, you only go to the court of Gentiles. You do not get to move further in. Otherwise, you're risking death, and there's a lot on the line there. So the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, the only place that they had, if they were gonna come and worship and they were gonna have a time of prayer or all that was this court of Gentiles. And the Jews had turned the court of Gentiles into the area for the buying and selling of animals and the exchange of money. Now that was supposed to happen further out, outside of the actual temple court, but they had brought it in. Now here's what you have to understand. If you were Jewish, this was not a problem right, because you had your own court. You could either the court of Israel or the court of of women, depending on your sex, Uh, but you're fine, Like there's no issue for you. Uh, This would only be a problem if you're a Gentile. But if you're a Gentile, what that means is if you came to worship and have a place to pray and to try to experience God, you've got animals all around you, you have the money exchanging all around you, Uh, you didn't have your area. You were the ones who lost the most. And so Jesus's objection here, as I understand it, is really twofold. Number one, that they are excluding an entire group of people, and on top of that, they're doing it in the name of worship, right? We are worshiping God, and in the process, we are excluding those, and that is what makes Jesus incredibly offended, incredibly bothered. But I would bet most Jews at that point would look at this and go, why is Jesus so mad? Because he's ready to realize, Jesus was Jewish. He could have gone into that court. He was not excluded from it. And so he's not mad because he's left out. He's mad because he realizes how the temple worship is being used to exclude others, and it causes him to act. Now, you might go, what's the deal with the violent Jesus? I mean, this is a little bizarre. And if you've ever read about Jesus, or maybe you're not super familiar with him, but this is not what we normally think of we think of Jesus now. I always like to imagine what would I do if I'm one of the disciples and I'm there with Jesus on that day. Now, the disciples, a lot of them were from obscure places all around, so you can only imagine that when they, when they got to Jerusalem, when they get to see the temple, they probably were in awe. Like, wow, Jesus, look how big this is! This is amazing. We're here. We're in the temple. This is awesome. And then I, I, the way I imagine is, at some point, they're all looking around. They're like, "Where's Jesus?" I don't know. I thought he was with you. No, he's not with me. I thought, I thought he was with you. Where? And like, they're like looking around, and all of a sudden they look over at a table in the corner. They see angry Jesus, you know? And he's over at the table, and he's like making something. <laughs> you know how people do stuff when they're angry. And they're like looking at him, they're like, what, What's he doing? I, I don't know. He's got like some cords over there. Is he making a necklace? Like, I, I can't tell what he's no, I don't I don't know if it's a necklace. And they're just kind of watching him, like, I don't know. And all of a sudden it's like, Guys, Guys, he's making a whip. Jesus is making a whip. And then they're thinking, oh, no, this is it. This is the day we die. You know, like Jesus is making a whip in the temple. I don't know what he's going to do with it, but this is probably not a good idea, Jesus, to come into the temple with a whip. You know, I I don't know why you're making one, but Jesus makes his own whip and, and then creates quite the commotion. Now, uh, one of the things that's important to note, and because this is where it, this gets uh, interpreted in a variety of ways, but all four gospel accounts record this story. Okay? That's interesting. Uh, there's not a lot of stories that every single gospel writer decides this is worth including, but all four of them include this. But John adds a few interesting details that the others do not include. The first thing that John adds that the other three—Matthew, Mark, and Luke—do not include is the fact of the whip. That detail does not find its way into the other three versions, which is kind of interesting. I would think you talk about the whip, but they don't. Uh, They don't mention the whip. Only John mentions the whip. But John is the only one that also mentions the sheep and the cattle. You might go, well, why does it matter that those two details? Because if you are looking at the text itself and going, what is happening here? The inference is that the whip is used to drive out the animals, That is why John includes the whip and John includes the animals, because they go together. I've had a number of people quote this text to me to make the point that Jesus made a weapon and he used it on other people. I would say that is nowhere found in this text and that would be a misreading of what is actually happening. This was not used on people, this was used for animals. And so Jesus is using the whip to drive out the animals. He takes the tables of the money changers, throws them over and what he's doing is saying this, you will not be able to continue what you're doing once I leave, right? So if he were just to walk by and go, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't be doing that, you shouldn't be doing this. Then when he left, they'd be like, who's that guy? And they get right back to it. But when he drives the animals out and the, the money tables are over and money's everywhere on the floor, it's not like they just go right back to business as usual. He is disrupting the entire uh, thing that was going on there for the purpose uh, of, of you know, making his point. Now you might be going, well, what point is he making and, and what do we draw from it today? Well, as I was thinking about this, here's one of the takeaways that I had, and I encourage you to write this down look for Jesus to be with those who are left out. It's an easy takeaway. Look for Jesus to be with those who are left out. Now again, remember, Jesus as a Jew had access to the inner court. It wasn't his issue. But Jesus is, is angry on behalf of others who are being excluded in the name of worship. Now we might look at this as an anomaly and go, man, so glad we don't have a temple today, we don't have courts today, and that's great. But here's the reality, church, okay? And and if you're uh, you're a Christian today, I need you to feel some ownership in this, and if you're a guest with us and you're not Christian, you're off the hook, okay? But here's the deal. If you're a Christian, here's what I want you to realize. We do this same thing that they were doing. We can easily turn worship into what we want it to be about, into making us feel great, and, and inadvertently maybe, we start to exclude other people. And in fact, one of the many issues of churches today is that churches can be notoriously insider-focused. We get really good at making sure we get the worship that we want, everything is just the way we want it, and oh yeah, we might exclude a few people in the process, but that's just to be expected. No, I think we need to look for Jesus to be with those who are left out, which is why as a church, we want to do everything we can. We are constantly working hard to make sure we are not leaving people out. And we wanna always be willing to change how we do what we do for the purpose of continually including others, especially when it comes to how we choose to worship. And I think that is why Jesus is so angry here is because he's watching an entire system that was only serving the insiders and making sure they had worship just the way they wanted it with no care or no thought for what it meant for everyone else. Now, Jesus goes in there and he does this. Now we get to get the reaction to that. So you can only imagine uh, Jesus is driving out the animals. He's flipping over the tables. What is everyone gonna say to this? And the reaction is actually not what you would expect. Go to chapter two, verse 18. It says, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Okay, so they're not saying, how dare you? Do- no, 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 what right do you have? It's an interesting response. What authority do you have to do what you are doing? All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's probably not what you want to say to de-escalate the situation, right? All right, I'll burn this sucker down, and I will raise it up. They're going, wait, what did he just say? Uh, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Now, this is an interesting response. They're not going, How could you have a whip? How could you turn over a table? No, they're going, What authority? Do you have? This is all about authority because I think that they know they're in the wrong, that this is not what the court of Gentiles was supposed to be used for. They have used their authority to to decide we're gonna use it for this purpose and Jesus is now claiming a rival authority to say that is not what this is intended for. So now we have an authority battle over who has the authority to decide what the temple should be. Now notice here, in Jesus' response, you realize he thinks of the temple very differently than they do. He calls it his father's house, but then he starts talking about his body. He starts to talk about himself as a temple, which again, doesn't even make sense for them until after the crucifixion, but this is a theme that we see all throughout the the, the book of John. One scholar named John Baer says it like this. The whole of the gospel of John is a carefully framed account of Jesus' construction of the true temple of God, which he himself is and which climaxes when he is crucified. So all of what we see here, this beginning in this moment, is that Jesus is claiming rival authority to the temple. Now, again, we're not, uh, most of us, are not Jewish. We don't don't think of worship happening at the temple. So this isn't a big deal for us. But this is a huge claim for Jesus to make, going, you think you go to the temple and that is where you experience God. My authority uh, supersedes that and I am the true temple. And we're gonna see this throughout the rest of the book. But this is a huge point for Jesus to make. And, And his words only make sense after the crucifixion. And so you can imagine in this moment they're looking at him going, What are you talking about? Because they have no idea. But essentially what he's saying is is some, you know, biblical smack talk. Look, you can kill me, and three days later, I'm gonna come back to life. I mean, if you ever wondered where we got this from, this is from Jesus. That's where he got it from. It's from Jesus. Like, this is this is serious smack talk. Oh, yeah? You want to know the authority I have? Kill me and I'll be back. Now, one word of, of note here. Uh, if you've seen this movie, he comes back to kill a bunch of people. Uh, that's not what Jesus is coming back for, okay? So <laughs> Jesus is coming back for a de- very different purpose for redemption, not for destruction, all right? So just notice that. But this is, this is like some smack talk. Oh, you wanna you want know the authority I have? Here's my authority. Kill me, and I'll come back three days later. Which, if you're saying that before it's happened, Okay, sure, yeah, Jesus, you're gonna come back from the dead. Yeah, we'll believe that when we see it. But then they see it, and they're like, oh. Okay. So that's why John's like, yeah, and then later, after all this happened, they thought back to this sort and went, oh, remember when he said that? Like, that's an interesting way to, to describe the authority that you have. All right? uh, Pastor Andy Stanley, and I, I love this, quote. I've used this before, but he, he states it this way. If someone predicts their own death and resurrection, and pulls it off, we should go along with whatever that person says. (laughs) This is Jesus' argument, okay? I'm predicting my own death and resurrection, and I'm going to pull it off, and therefore, I have the authority to make this claim. And therefore, I have the authority to tell you that this temple uh, as a building is not the end all, that I will replace it, that what I am doing will be the access you have to God. Now, this is a strange story. Uh, What do we do with a story like this? Is it just uh, fun to study, but what's the takeaway for you and I? Now, I wrestled uh, with this because I thought, man, this this one's bizarre. What's the application? And so I'm gonna take a stab at it. I don't think I've ever had this application in the message before, We'll see where it goes. All right, so here's a question I wanna ask each of us. And uh, again, probably a question you haven't spent much time thinking through. Here's the question. How much righteous anger do you have? I know it's a little strange. Uh, how much righteous anger? you may be going, what is righteous anger? So not, not how much anger do you have? Some of, some of us are like, yeah, I got plenty of that. No, no, not how much anger, how much righteous anger? How much of the things that bother God bother you? Or conversely, how many of the things that bother God are you okay with? Or are you like, ah, that's not a big deal for me. How much righteous anger do you have? Now, you might be going, well, what kind of things should I be bothered about? I started a list, and this is by no means uh, you know, uh, exhaustive, but here's a few things that I think should bother us. Um, racism, sexism, tribalism, classism, ableism, ageism, and any other ism that hurts people. Right? And we could go on and on and on and make a list of things and ideas and, and systems that hurt people and dehumanize people. And we go, that should bother us. Now, if you're like most people, you're going, well, I'm angry, but not about that. Like, I'm angry about other things. Like, like I'm angry, I have anger, but I, I wouldn't say my anger is, is at those things, per se. It's at, it's at other things. Now, I want you to think about, like, when's the last time you got mad? Like, what was it about? Was it like a real noble cause? Um, because I could answer it for myself, and it's not noble at all. Uh, I, I, had, uh, <laughs> I had a number of, of moments with my kids. Awesome. We got a lot of time with my kids. It's not why I'm angry. Uh, just telling you, I had a lot of time with my kids. They had break, I had a break, and so we're all hanging out. And there's been something they've been pleading with me for like a year now, uh, but they have a video game that they love called Fortnite, Some of you may uh, know this game. And they're going, dad, please play Fortnite with us. Now, here's the deal. If you don't know Video Game World, uh, this is like a weird kid game that adults play too, but it's like really taken off with elementary kids. And uh, it has like, have you ever seen kids do the weird dances? It's probably from the Fortnite game. And so it's like a shooter game, but there's dancing and it's like cartoony. I don't know how to describe it if you've ever seen it. Very strange, Uh, but my kids love it. All their friends love it. It's like this huge deal. And so I'm like, you know what? I'll play Fortnite with you. I'll, I'll make a fool of myself and, you know, we'll, we'll do this. And so I'm playing a couple games that day with them and they, they're loving it. And I'm getting a little agitated because I'm not good at it. And, you know, I'm getting uh, probably killed by little elementary school kids all around the country. <laughs> and it bothers me. But uh, one of the games, uh, we were playing duos. And so it was my 11-year-old and I. And, uh, and so it's, you know, teams of two and it's 100 people you know, per game. And, and so we're doing this and... I kid you not, on the first day of this, my 11-year-old and I win a match. Now, to understand how we won it, he had 19 kills in the match and I didn't die. (laughs) Which was my contribution to our team. And so literally, I just ran behind him and just followed him and he did all the work. And I was like, okay, this is fine, you know. But what really agitated me was that, and again, if you've never played Fortnite, this won't make sense, but uh, because it's kinda, it's it's like a weird, kid-friendly shooter game, and so if you get hit, you get knocked down, and you crawl around for a little bit, hoping that one of your teammates will revive you, which is a strange thing, you know, and so I get knocked down, of course. Uh, You know, my 11-year-old is good, And then what the real moment that I had to go, what's happening, is he picked me up on his shoulders and he carried me to safety. As a dad, this is a humbling moment to have (laughs) your 11-year-old carry you to safety in a video game because you can't hang, you know. And it was like all these emotions I'm going through. A couple games later, my 9-year-old carried me. And it's just like, okay. I can't handle this, this makes me a little bit angry. But here's the deal, that's not the anger that God wants to use in my life. This is not what we're talking about, okay? Now here's how you can know. Here's something I would encourage you to do this week. Let's say that you've got some anger and As soon as I talk about anger, you're like, oh yeah, I got it, it's there. I would encourage you to spend time this week telling Jesus what you're angry about. Seriously, like you have a conversation with Jesus, you go, all right, Jesus, here's the deal this is what I'm angry about, and explain it in detail to Jesus. I think one of two things will happen. Number one, in the explaining of your anger to Jesus, you may realize, I don't think I should be angry about this. You know what, as I'm saying this to you, it doesn't sound like it's worth being that angry about, and I'm getting the perspective now, as I'm telling it to you, that I probably shouldn't be that angry. Or, the second thing is you might go, no, I think this bothers Jesus as well, but here's what I want you to do, If if that's where you land, Ask Jesus to speak into it. Hey, Jesus, what do you want me to do with my anger? How, how should I handle this? What, what should I do about this? See, the reason why we're often uncomfortable talking about anger is most examples we see of it are not healthy, because we don't usually think to bring Jesus into it. We think, no, I'm gonna handle anger on my own, and yeah, Jesus, he doesn't know about anger, but we just read a story that Jesus seems to know about anger and, and seems pretty good at expressing his anger in a healthy and productive way. Now, here's something to note as you're processing through this, is that even righteous anger can inspire unrighteous behavior, okay? So even if you say, no, this cause is just, I I am absolutely justified for it, if you don't look like Jesus in your anger, you're doing it wrong, period. And so even if you're going, this is worth being angry about, great, you still have to handle it like Jesus would. And so if Jesus were to go in and he were to use the whip on people and all, you'd go, wow, that's a very different story. That's not what he's doing, right? He's controlling it. He's using it. You have to figure out, how do I have a Jesus-looking response to this anger, even if the anger is a righteous anger? I love the way that one pastor explains this, and I think she's spot on. Uh, April Fiat says it like this. I do believe that righteous indignation is a thing, righteous anger is a thing, but I also believe we are often terrible judges of our own anger. I think she is spot on. This really is a thing, right? We find it in Jesus. It's a thing that I think we should talk about, but we are not good at it. And we are so quick to think, whatever makes me mad, I'm justified with. And so we, we fight all kinds of stupid battles in the name of Jesus, and we think, no, this is, it's not. I think we are really bad at it. But I also think it's worth talking about. We need to always look like Jesus, even when we're angry. And I want you to notice, and, and keep track of this, Jesus wasn't angry often. So if that is your default, that's your go-to uh, posture, you probably need to work on that, because Jesus wasn't angry often. Uh, and, and what we also learn here, and you find this throughout the New Testament, is that the, the, the writers were very clear to help us understand that our real enemy is never a person. Now, we're not good at this as, as Christians. We, we like to villainize, we like to scapegoat, but the real enemy is never a person. It's something beyond that person. Now, Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, for we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, we're not, don't get confused, we're not fighting people, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. See, what we like to go is, no, I'm mad at that person, and I'm going to take it out on them. And, and, and the New Testament writers would be so clear, no, 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 you're, you're, you're missing it. That's not what your anger should be directed at. There's something bigger than them. See, the real enemy is never a person. That is why Jesus is dealing with bigger things, is never aimed directly at a person. So here's the question for you and I then. What do we do with our righteous anger? How are our our, our actions reflecting the righteous anger that we have? Now that might be a little too hard of a question. Uh, Break it down. How do your actions reflect your regular anger? Oh, well, we're good at that, right? Uh, Imagine you go out to a restaurant and your server is incredibly rude and you talk to the manager and they're incredibly rude and the whole experience is awful. What do you do? Well, with that anger, you go online and you write a Yelp review or a Google review or you let somebody know that that was bad and there's gonna be consequences for how you treated me at dinner, okay? That's normal anger and that's how our actions reflect it. So how do our actions reflect righteous anger? hey, this is not the way it should be. This bothers Jesus and I'm gonna let it bother me and my actions will reflect that. So this is a, a huge question for us as a church when it comes to how we do global and local outreach. And when we go outside of the church, how do we as a church react and respond like Jesus to things around us that are bothering Jesus, What is our response, does it match up to, uh, do our actions match up to the anger, the righteous anger that we should have? But one of the ways that we've processed through this is, is through an illustration. If you ever heard the history of mining, uh, of coal mining in particular, you may know that they use canaries in the mine uh, to measure the, the quality of the air because canaries are, are especially sensitive uh, to carbon monoxide and other toxic uh, you know, chemicals in the air, and, and so they would get negatively affected by that before it would affect a human. And so coal miners would often have canaries in the mine. Now, again, I'm not making this up, you've maybe heard of this, but you can find old pictures of, of miners and canaries and it went together. And the assumption was this, as the canary goes, so go the miners. Right, And so this became an indicator for the rest of the people in the mine as the canary goes. So goes the miners. But the reality is they probably didn't care that much about the canary. The canary was more of a means to an end. But here's one of the things that we've realized is we've been praying for the last few years, going, God, how do we really focus our heart for those outside of the church? How do we really live this out? Is that God has revealed to us that there are canaries in society. There are people that are especially sensitive uh, to what happens in our culture, to what happens in the world. And when they are, are hurt, it is an indicator that the rest of the culture is going to follow suit. And when the canaries of society are doing well, it is an indicator that that culture and that society is doing well holistically. Now, this is why for us, we've decided, hey, as we try to figure out what is the brand of our outreach, so how do we focus on what we're about when it comes to outside of these walls, we've created the image of a canary. And so you may have seen this. You're gonna start seeing more of this. Uh, This is what we're basically saying. This is how we remind ourselves to care about people that society often doesn't care about. And you might be going, okay, well, like specifically, what, what does this mean? Like who are the canaries in society? There's two words that as we prayed through this and processed through this that have stood out to us that are helpful ways of understanding people who often fit into this canary model. And so the two words are vulnerable and displaced people. Okay? Those who are vulnerable, those who are displaced are often the canaries of a culture. Now, we've even tried to, to, to whittle this down even more specifically of, of who would be groups of people included in these, uh, in these two categories. So for vulnerable, we've recognized that would be the poor, it would be widows, it would be foster children, and it would be orphans. would be examples of, of vulnerable people that, again, are inherently susceptible uh, to, to you know, dangers of this world unique to them that, that you and I might not suffer through the same way. Then there's also displaced people who are vulnerable, but the the the, the details of their uh, situation means that they're usually not uh, in their home. They're they're not you know at, at a home base, and so we would say this would include immigrants, refugees, those who have been or are at risk of being trafficked for sex, and those living on the streets or in shelters. Now again, this is not an exhaustive list, but this gives us something to tangibly say we could be a church to care about people like this that society says these people don't really matter, right? That we live in a world that goes, yeah, 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 those are just always gonna be there. But we believe that as the canaries go, so goes society. And we wanna be a church that joins with Jesus and being bothered by systems that create canaries. And we're going to speak up for uh, anyone who's in these categories, and we're going to give opportunities for us to go, you know what? We're going to, to join with Jesus in caring for these people. And so one of the things you can get if you go to Starting Point today, uh, we have these little cards. And on one side, it has a, a list of local outreach partners based on vulnerable and displaced people groups. If you want to know, hey, what, like, what organizations are we partnering with to do this? Well, we've been looking for people going, who is doing incredible work uh, to do this? We're gonna join with them as a church. And if you flip it over, you see from a global point of view, what are trips and organizations around the world that are tackling some of these things? We're gonna join with them. And I wanna encourage you uh, to join us as we develop this heart in our church to go, we're going to care about canaries. We wanna be a church who joins Jesus in those caring for those who are left out. And when the world says, yeah, I just don't think those people really matter much. I want us to be the church that says, no, they they matter to us and we will use our voice and we will use our righteous anger to look like Jesus, but to do everything we can for those who are left out. Let's pray together. Jesus, as we wrestle with this, as we process through things like anger that we know we're not necessarily good at, I pray that you would give us a perspective here that that is beyond us, that we would be able to see the things that make us mad, whether or not they're worth being mad about. And that we would be able to have a conversation with you about the things that make us mad and invite your voice into shaping what we do with it. But more importantly, as a church, I pray that we would be bothered by the things that bother you. I pray that those who are left out, even if it doesn't personally immediately affect us, we would learn to care in profound ways for them. We would learn to use our voice, to use what you have given us for their benefit, that you would literally change the communities around our campuses because of our willingness to say yes to you, our willingness to partner with you. And I pray that we would get to see a little piece of heaven come to earth as we say yes and agree to join you and whatever you wanna do. And so, uh, God, we, we pray all this. We ask you to, to give us a boldness, ask you to give us wisdom, ask you to, to use ordinary people like us to, to make this earth, to make this culture and this society more of what you want it to be. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.